man, you know, I want to talk to you about soccer. I want to talk to you about the work you've done as a humanitarian, especially as it pertains to, you know, what was going on with George Floyd and things like that recently, as well as, you know, fast forward to, uh, you know, the present and what we're doing, what you're doing right now, as far as, uh, you know, you know, taking flights, being in the helicopter and as a student, as soon to be a student of Harvard, but, you know, without further ado, on the episode 10 season finale of Rich and Facts, I bring to you a man who has one of the strongest spirits, human beings I've ever met. This person is a coach for the soccer team at the Cambridge Ridge and Latin High School. He is an activist for the city of Cambridge. He is a pilot in training and soon to be student at the University of Harvard. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to Nico Emac. How you doing, my brother? My guy, my guy. <laughs> it's like the, it's like the Spider-Man meme right now. I'm just pointing right back at you. So. <laughs> Honored to be here. Honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Man, it's a pleasure to have you all, man. Nico, from the time I, you know, met, heard of you, you know, you were on the soccer field, man. And I think it's amazing to watch the journey of someone who grew up with soccer to now be a coach. But I want, you know, the backstory, man. Talk to me about, you know, where your passion for soccer came from. Yeah, I would say it even goes, it's bigger than that. It's just the passion for for sports, you know. Um, sports have, have, have taught me everything I, I know about life, right? It's, it's, it's taught me how to work hard. It's taught me how to, how, to, how to lose, which we'll get into later. I think that's a really big important. Before you can even learn how to win, you have to learn how to lose. Um, it's taught me how to be a member of a team. And furthermore, it's taught me how to be a leader. Um, so throughout this journey, it's just, it's funny. I mean, you introduced me with all these uh, accolades and, <laughs> and stuff, but that's not the way I feel. That's not the way I see it. You know, I feel like I've been in, on one long journey of just loss after loss after loss. And then every once in a while, I scrape away a win. And then, you know, I post that win or I share that win. Everyone goes crazy. Um, but from my perspective, on my, you know, I've just seen it as, you know, you know, I, I barely remember the wins. I, I just, I stay true to the losses every day. And I don't want to say that in a depressing way. I don't want to say that in a way, in a pessimistic way. Um, it's just one of those things where I'm all about the work. You know, I'm all about the journey, not the destination. So for me, like, I, I really honor and cherish those losses, those moments of, of, you know, of solitude when you're out there just training by yourself and, and still not getting the results you want, um, but learning about yourself in the process and, and, and working on your craft and making yourself better. Um, so, you know, yes, like, you know, I grew up playing the game, played in high school, played in college. You know, now I'm coming back and coaching at my high school, which is great. But for me, you know, if you ask me what the highlights of my career, you know, I'm going to tell you about the time that I stayed after, you know, in college and took 100 shots <laughs> before going home, you know, in the freezing cold. I'm going to tell you about the times, you know, when I got cut from teams. So I'm going to tell you about the times, right, when I wasn't good enough. Um, because for me, that's when I got the fire lit under me. Um, and then, you know, in those little moments, I learned so much about myself and was able to then, you know, push and grind out of it. Um, so again, I, you know, I say all that to say is, you know, it sounds contradictory to say your favorite part about sports is to lose. Um, but honestly, I really couldn't tell you that much about, you know, the highlights. Um, Cause I just don't, I don't carry them with me the same way. You know, a lot of people live in the past. They say, Oh, remember that time I won the game, yeah. that time I scored the goal. And don't get me wrong. If you look through my social media, there's some highlights in there too, mm -hmm. you know, but you know, those aren't the memories that, that uh, helped me grow. And those aren't the memories that got me to where I am today. So funny enough, I actually cherish, I cherish the tough moments, um, the times when I was injured, but kept going, you know, uh, in a healthy way, <laughs> you know, the times when I was down, the times when I wasn't good enough, but then made the team the following year, you know, it's in those little moments of, uh, of triumph that have uh, really stayed with me. Um, you know, I think that's an amazing perspective to have, Nico, because I think a lot of times as human beings, we're really scared to be vulnerable where, if, you know, it's tough to accept loss and embrace loss because, you know, it's it's so crushing. It feels like you you put the time and the effort in and something's being taken away from you is being deprived. And, you know, I think a lot of times we remember the losses more than we remember the wins because the pain of it just hurts that much deeper and it. 
And I just think naturally as human beings, it, it's very easy to get drawn into the, the negatives. It's just easier to, for the energy to come in contact. But I think it really shows how much you value the process and the journey. Because like you said, the wins come from you hitting 100 shots when nobody's watching, from you cutting from teams and having the mindset to get up and keep going. Because life is going to hit you all the time, especially when you're trying to move forward. Because when you're climbing up a step, you're elevating your body at a point where it has to move on its own without having that ground to step on. And you're hoping that by lifting up, you're going to land a step higher. But sometimes we don't. We slip and fall. And I think, like you said, getting back up is the key part of it. And, um, you know, I think that's why it's something like NFL films or Michael Jordan's flu game is so popular because we get – I look at sports as a metaphor for life. We really get to see the process of what life looks like. Some days are good. Some days are bad. Some days you learn from those losses and sometimes it takes longer and sometimes you don't. And that ends up being the reality and, you know, things for whatever reason don't work out. But it's obvious that, you know, those have really impacted you in a way where it's built you. And I think that's awesome because, you know, soccer, like you said, you don't win all the time, you know, you lose and, there's times when you've probably had some loss and you're like, man, I don't want to play this sport anymore or I don't want to go to practice tomorrow. But, you know, you kept going. I think that's really inspiring because you've probably had teammates that have quit. You've had teammates that, you know, maybe didn't give 100% because the losses were painful. And losses are painful. I want to acknowledge that. Like, they are painful and they show up in different ways. But, you know, I think your mindset on soccer and as it pertains to life is the reason why you were able to become a coach. You know, not everybody can go from being – uh, uh, a league soccer player as a youth to now being able to teach. Coaching isn't just about the X's and O's. It's about leading men. It's about mm -hmm. inspiring them and giving them the right tools, whether it's for soccer or whether it's for anything else they do in life. And, you know, you clearly have, you know, a good head on your shoulders and mindset about the the more life aspect of, of the sport, not just the X's and O's. The X's and O's are important, but as we know, so much of sports is mental. You know, right, right. And that's no. the thing. It's like in these moments, um, you know, it, it's preparing you for life the whole time. You said it best. Sports is a metaphor for life. Right. So, you know, when I'm about to go, you know, give a speech. Right. I'm not nervous. You know why? Because I know what it's like to throw up in the trash can at Reggie Lewis. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <They> track me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> And I also, you know, I don't get nervous, right? Because I know, or I don't get uh, intimidated. I don't get scared, right? Because I know what it's like to sit in the pouring rain and not get a single minute in a game and be furious, right? I know what it's like to miss a PK and take your penny off and throw it on the ground, right? <laughs> because even though it's practice, you're still that locked in, right? And so for me, it's like, it's like I, I take these moments, um, you know, not just on the field, but in, into my professional life as well. And so how could you ever be, ever be blindsided? How could you ever be upset? How could you ever be scared when you've, when you spent your whole life preparing for those moments in a different way? Um, and oftentimes I lock into that mindset, right? Of like, you know, I like these moments, these challenges, these adversaries and roadblocks, because once you push through them, you're just making your mind stronger the same way you're making your body stronger. And once you make your mind as sharp as you can, it's like, there's nothing you can't do. <laughs> I mean, there's not a room I walk into or, you know, I was joking the other day, and we'll get into this, you know, about, you know, about the flying stuff, but um, uh, I was joking about with some friends about going to space, you know, <laughs> and I love that, right, and it's like, and I'm just, and I'm just joking when I say that, but it's like, it's like once you've, once you've unlocked the recipe of, of, of you know, of putting in the X amount of work gets X amount, you know, or Y result, you know, again, there's nothing you can't do, um, so I'll cap it there before we get ahead. But uh, but yeah, forever thankful for those lessons uh, learned on the field. You know, Nico, talk to me about, you know, I want to know some of, like, was there was there a turning point when, like where it started, where it started to click as far as what was important? Like, I'm curious to know what was, what, like, what first was the, was the biggest challenge that you faced during you know from from the time that you started playing soccer to where you are right now that you feel yeah. like and, and I know it might not always be one defined thing but if there was one if there's a moment where it where you could say like that was one of the toughest things I had to overcome and if it wasn't for that I wouldn't be here now what was there what moment was like that for you I have two answers for you I have a I have a you know a physical one and then I have a more you know 
um, emotional one, but I think the first one um, would just be my technical ability. Um, you know, I came up, I was, I've always been, you know, the best athlete on whatever team I've been a part of, right? That means being the guy who can run the fastest, you know, run the farthest, maybe jump the highest, right? Uh, put up the weight in the weight room, whatever it may be. You know, I was the guy who was putting his body through the grind, um, which is great. And it gets you very far at a young age and it gets you very far in high school. And it, it can even get your foot in the door at a college program. But once you get there, right, guess what? When you get to college, everyone was the team captain, right? <laughs> everyone yep. was the MVP. Everyone has league honors. Everyone was doing, you know, doing the same stuff. So although, and don't get me wrong, I still take pride in being, you know, uh, that same athletic guy in college. I was still winning all those competitions and the fitness tests, but it's not enough anymore because the margin is starting to close, right? In high school, the margin might've been, you know, you might've had 10, 20 seconds on these guys, but in college you only have, you know, four or five seconds. So you're still winning, but again, if you can't compete with them, you know, on the technical level, you're going to be left behind. Um, so that was definitely a big adjustment, you know? Um, but I also take pride in that too. You know, I, I came to college and realized, you know, you know, and this is no excuse, but just, you know, how much of a pay to play model, you know, a lot of these kids were, were benefiting from, um, you know, and, they had the best trainers, right? They were playing on the best club teams, which now as a coach, I realized through like a lens of equity, isn't really always promoting the best players. It's promoting the people who can pay to be there. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll get into a larger conversation about coaching, but, you know, kind of overcoming that hurdle and, and realizing that, oh, you know what? I have this great foundation, but I actually wasn't as trained, trained as well as I thought I was. Um, so again, that goes back to the grind, but a lot, a lot of work. And it didn't happen overnight. It didn't. You know, I had a great, I came in at a great, you know, first season, um, but then things kind of plateaued. And then I remember my junior year, I really struggled. I, I wasn't getting the minutes that I wanted. Um, I wasn't, you know, just things weren't clicking. I was, you know, letting the team down and not playing the, to the best of my ability. And, you know, the thing that really sucked about that was that it wasn't because of a lack of effort. <laughs> I was going out there and giving 110%. It just wasn't enough. Um, but again, in those moments of kind of isolated training and just, you know, being out there and working on my individual technical level, I, I ended up really, really getting it down the road and it didn't click where I thought it was going to click, right? I kept waiting for it to happen. Oh, it's going to happen this game. It's going to happen this season. Um, but when I look at my career from a bird's eye, you know, I was able to play two years of soccer in the UPSL um, after college, which is you know, it's it's lower leagues, but it's still semi-professional soccer. It's a part of the U.S. soccer pyramid. Uh, and hey, I'll fully admit that I was probably the worst player on that team. But I was playing with guys who are now playing pro right now, some of them overseas, right? I was playing against guys that uh, I knew from back in the day who would have 20 times better than me in high school or 20 times better or played at X college that's, you know, that's ranked higher. And here I was on the same team as them starting, getting minutes. And, you know, again, all that individual isolated work that I had done in college, it wasn't always paying off in the moment. But then again, when I take the bird's eye view, I look back and I say, wow, I was actually able to achieve a very high level of soccer. Um, and I did it, you know, I did it the hard way. I did it the grind way. Um, you know, I didn't do it through private coaches or through expensive clubs. I did it by putting in the work. Um, and so again, I just forever thankful for that. But in those moments, in the cold, in the rain, not getting the minutes that I wanted, that was definitely, uh, you know, a very hard thing to overcome. I would say on a more, you know, metaphorical level, uh, I think the hardest thing that I've over had to overcome just as a, as a person, but also as an athlete is, is myself. Um, and we can talk about this, you know, as we get down the road again towards, you know, the flying and the Harvard stuff. But I think for a large part of my life, I've been, uh, I've been scared of my own gifts. <laughs> And, you know, I've been, I've been taking the easy way out. I've been taking the path of least resistance, right? As a student, being smart enough to know exactly how hard I had to work to get a B, right? <laughs> Which actually takes a lot, a lot of intelligence when you really start to think about it. But yeah, again, yeah. you know, you're doing all this advanced calculus just to figure out how, how little of an effort you have to put in to get out, you know, with, a, with an okay, with a 3.0, right? And so... And I, I take the same, um, you know, look when I look at sports, right? Being the guy who, who was the fastest, who was the strongest, maybe who was the most physically fit in that, in that kind of way. But still knowing that and saying, okay, well, then you only have to put in this, this amount of work or, oh, you can go out tonight because 
it doesn't even matter. You're still going to crush the fitness test in the morning. Right. And that's not holding myself to the same standard. Um, and again, maybe not being scared of my gifts is the right word, but just, but just a level of maturity over time that just said, you know what, we're only here for a certain amount of time. And, you know, these are my gifts and I, and, and, you know, God willing, I better not waste them. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I look back and I think, I think of the level I could have achieved if I had just been a bit more serious in high school, a bit more serious in college. Um, you know, but it is what it is. We're all on the journey and you know, I'm thankful for every lesson. And, you know, we're all we're all along the journey at, at our points. You know, there's no there's no rush to it. So, yes, had I could go back and maybe done things differently. Sure. But then I wouldn't be here right now you know, talking to you. So uh, it's all part of the journey. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's a really interesting perspective, especially when you talk about how. At that, at that I think that that happens to a lot more athletes than we realize. And I don't like using this term because like, I, I feel like it kind of has a negative connotation on it, but it's the best analogy I can think about. But when they talk about the big fish in the small pond, you know, I want to say when it comes to that small pond, it still takes a lot of skill to be a big fish in a small pond. Cause not everybody can be that big fish. And you know, you're young, you're, you're like 14, 15, 16, 17, whatever. We're not mature enough at that age to have that kind of perspective. Nico at 17 wasn't thinking about what, what it was going to be like playing soccer in college. And uh, just from an audience, uh, you know, where did you go to uh, university, by the way, um, Nico? Cause that, that, that was something I thought about and I should have asked that before we started. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no worries. No worries. I did. Um, my freshman year at UMass Amherst, and then I transferred and finished out at Emerson College. So I did okay. my sophomore, my junior, and senior year there in Boston. Um, and that was the best decision I ever made. Um, I, at the time, yeah, you're talking about 17-year-old Nico. You know, the second these D1 schools started calling, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, I was drinking the Kool-Aid, um, you know. And, and again, um, it's just one of those things where, you know, weirdly enough, I think sometimes you need to be the big fish in a small pond. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, not for any, you know, reason other than that, it just, in a small pond, you have more community and you have more accountability, right? At a big school at UMass, you know, no one's, no one's I mean, yes, you have friends and teachers, but 30,000 people, no, no one's seeing you every day with that same consistency and checking in. At a place like Emerson, that's probably only about 3,000, right? You know, you have that accountability built in. And everyone's saying, no, 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 we see your greatness and we're going to hold you to that standard every single day. Uh, and I think that was that was great for me, not just athletically, but academically as well. Yeah. And maybe you can you know, maybe this was true for you, too. But I also think with being a big fish in a small pond, especially early in life, it can do a lot for your confidence and just getting you off the ground. Right. Like I, you know, I didn't go to a I didn't go to a journalism school. Now, there were people like yourself and uh, I almost forgot his name, and Zolan. And there were a couple yeah. of folks at Colby Sawyer, you know, who were doing cool things in media, but it wasn't a situation, but like, and now, now seeing you, now seeing you and Zolan put like, put, put the, it put the pressure on me to have to go, like, like halfway through college, but I'll save that for later. But had, had that been at Colby Sawyer right out of the gate, I think that may have really, made it difficult for me to start really taking those steps to grind because it can freak you out when like all of a sudden you know you think you're okay you're pretty good and before you get a really before you really get the chance to develop any sort of skill set you're seeing like 30 people who are better than you or more athletic and you're like shit like you're already unless you can really mentally overcome that early it's easy to sort of give up and back out so I don't want to discredit the importance of being in a position where you do get a chance to build some confidence, let your skills shine. Cause you still have to work hard. You just might not be in a situation where there's as many walls to soar through at one point, which, you know, if you sort of get the confidence to get going early, that can empower you to, to have a better mindset to take on those bigger challenges later down the line. But, you know, that being said, I think, you know, for you, it has to be interesting being on the other side of it now. Right and you and seeing what you went through being the athlete um you know the one who everybody else had to catch up to now you're on the other side now what is that like for you being a coach and 
you know, just the talent you're working with? Like, do you, do you see, is, is there, is there a Nico in the crowd? Is there someone who you're like, you know, like you got to take that. You're like, like, what, what is it like being on the other side and coaching young kids who may not have the perspective that you have now? Yeah. Well, first things first, I think there's a lot of ego involved in coaching. And that's one thing that I work to, 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 to diminish, diminish, excuse me. Right. Like people, it's just funny. Like, you know what I mean? Like a lot of times, I think this is true for teaching too, but it's like, I don't, I'm not on the field to create more Nikos, right? <laughs> I'm on the field to develop more Richards, right? To develop you as the individual, to play to your strengths. Um, and I think a lot of times, and it comes from a place, right? A, a place of love usually, but coaches want you to play their style, their way, because they have a certain understanding. But again, I actually, and again, I through, through my work in journalism too, I'm also able to speak with a lot of coaches and interview coaches. And, you know, I, I had the, the, the fortune of uh, interviewing this great guy the other day, um, professional soccer coach, black man. And, you know, he said that every player, right, has a reason for being on that team. Every player has their own individual genius that brought them to your field, right? Or, and you have to reward that, right? Some guys are great passers. Some guys are great shooters. Some guys are, are super technical. Some guys like me are, are great athletes, but they all have attributes that together, right, make a great team. Um, so for me, it's all about finding those, empowering them, and then making sure that they're aware of the weak side too, right? So it's saying, okay, yep, you're, you're good there. You see the game this way, I'm gonna reward that. But also, hey, you have some things to work on and, and here's why. And I think one of the big things is, you know, I think social media has helped us a lot. I also think it's hurt us a lot, right? For every strength, there's a weakness. And I think nowadays, kids have so much more access to drills. They are able to watch soccer online. You know what I mean? They're able, we have the Premier League streaming. You can watch it on NBC now, right? Um, it was a lot harder in my day. It was even harder, uh, you know, in the day before that. So uh, I think there's a, there's a bigger emphasis on the game now and a bigger connectivity. However, the, the flip side to that now is that kids live in a little bit of a delusional world, right? They're so used to watching a Premier League game that they go and watch a D3 game and say, oh, those kids suck. And I'm like, well, you know, I recently took the, the Cambridge team to watch Harvard University play. And because they weren't pinging the ball like Liverpool, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. all these kids were sitting in the, in, the, in the stadium, like talking shit about the players on a field that, and I'll say this openly, that none of them will ever play on. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right? again, it's just, they don't have respect for, for the level. Um, so a little bit of me kind of always reminding them of, you know, of, of what's out there and, and, and holding them accountable to their goals. Um, you know, it's, I think, a lot of people sit nowadays, again, they, they see the video, they see the NCAA, they, you know, they see the pro leagues and they say, oh, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. But they don't really know what it takes to get there. Um, so again, one of the big things for me as a coach is kind of always reminding them kind of, of again, respectfully and honestly, but of, of just how many levels there are to the game um, and kind of where they sit on that level. Right. Um, which I think is a good, as long as you do it respectfully and, you know, with, you know, um, with dignity, I think it's it's an important reminder um, because the truth is, right, as you know, you can pull up any statistic you want, but, you know, big fish, small pond, whatever, it is hard to be a college athlete. And that level is just something that you'll never understand until you get there, especially when you're young and, and, and you know, and, uh, and passionate. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's crazy you said it because you said early in that as far when it comes to egos, a lot of times coaches are trying to mold a player into their style. And I used to think about that all the time when, you know, I would watch, I don't want to make this too much about the NBA, but I'll, I'll just kind of use it as an analogy when it's, when no, I it's great. the NBA and the NFL where, you know, you'll see a player. I wish I had a guy off the top of my head, but um, damn, I really, really don't want to use him as an example, but this is the only guy that I could think about the top of my head right now. And, and forgive me, I used to have a better example, but, because I'm going to sound like a homer. But, you know, when I think of a coach like Belichick, right, you know, there are some players that you see in the NFL, and they don't work on X team because the coach is trying to make them do certain things that don't fit their skill set. And then Belichick will pull a guy like a, like a Wes Walker who got cut from the Dolphins, or I don't know, like a Randy Moss who was struggling, you know, in, in Oakland. And even though that guy was talented there, he found a way to bring in some guys out off the pool, off the junkyard, and figure out what they did well and help elevate those guys to the level where they could do well at what they did do well as opposed to other coaches who tried to turn them into something that they weren't good at. And I think 
like I, what you were saying, there's a lot of ego in that where if a coach can make a player who he like himself, there's some pride in that, right? If he comes more about the coach and does about developing talent. And it's a really interesting thing to navigate even in on the coaching side, how there is that ego and that pride of doing it this way. Cause as a player, you know, there's pride in winning, but also winning on our terms. And so that, that has to be interesting to, to, to have to navigate that, especially if you have other coaches who may want to do things, who may have that ego mindset and you're on the staff and you're like, well, I'm not really with that energy. How do you still make it work where the players don't get sort of brainwashing them being something that's not going to be healthy for them, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But man, and um, you know, just even, you know, even, you know, I mean, we've been talking about soccer for so long. I think it's just really impressive how you've been able to play with athletes who are now playing pro and I'm sure it's helped with mindset a lot just as far as seeing what the pros do on a daily basis, so just what it, what it takes like to win. It's, it's the process that's elevated you to, you know, what I kind of want to segue into next because you were talking about a player that you interviewed, you know, a brother just like me and you. You really took the bull by the horns in 2020 after the tragedy of George Floyd. And I think that all goes back to your mindset of soccer where it's just applying that process, that energy of just going after things and going after things in, in a manner where you can get results. What was that like for you? You know, what I mean, just what was that? I mean, it's such a tough thing to dig into, but it's a conversation we need to have. I guess, like, what was your mindset around that situation? Just, you know, from what happened to you just being able to rally the city because you're setting up meetings with city officials, organizing protests, all that sort of stuff. Just what, like, what, take me through the process. 100%, 100%. I mean, I think like most people, it was just, it was a tipping point. It was it was the moment that came, and you know it was just we couldn't we couldn't stomach a single a single more right another one um, you know and it's not to say that that you know that his Mr Floyd's death was you know it's more important than other people's deaths or that this video was worse than other videos I think it's just you're right it's just a, a war of attrition and we just we finally broke and we finally broke and. You know, for once, I think it wasn't just the black community who was devastated. For some reason, this one cut through and and it really touched it touched everyone. Um, you know, and uh, in those moments, right? I just, I just, I, enough was enough. And I think, you know, we look at some place like Cambridge, Mass, right? Very liberal, very progressive. You know, lots, you know, very, you know, academic. You know, we're always discussing the issues. You know. But at the same time, when you actually peel back our policies and, and peel back, right, the way we conduct business and the way we conduct, you know, our politics, you know, you'd be actually pretty shocked to see that it's, it's, it's not very different than a lot of these national conversations. It's not very different than, you know, a lot of this, the same, you know, um, you know, inequities and inequalities that we see, um, you know, in other towns and other places in mass and even around the country. Um, you know, so, and then for some context, of course, you know, I, I was already working for the city, you know, I studied politics in college, right? I've always been kind of hovering in this space, but to go deeper, I mean, all that stuff is is pretty much a no-brainer. I think for me personally, I think this was a, a tipping point where I said, you know what, I, I'm not, I'm not here to waste my my gifts anymore. Um, and I am for damn sure not here to, to, to waste my, my gifts, you know, quote unquote, playing, playing the white man's game. Um, and I think for a large part of my life, which I think every every person of color goes through, every minority I should say has to go through. That's you know, regardless of your you know, race, orientation, gender, like we have to swallow a lot of pride in this world. You know, um, you know. Oh, someone said a comment at work, but you know, can't say anything because I'm you know I'm, I'm a hungry journalist, or you know, professor says something uncomfortable, but you know what? You know, I'm the only black kid in this cl- class, like probably one of the only black kids in this college. So you know what, I'm gonna let it slide. And you know, it's not like they're calling us the N word. It's not that it's not overt racism. So it's easy to, to stomach that um, and put up with it, especially when you're, you're being told it's, it's to chase something higher, chase something higher. Um, and I think, again, you know, the same way those videos has kind of broke us as a, as a country, as, as a community, I think for me too, this idea that I was gonna put race in the back burner, um, you know, I was just, I was just over it. And I said, you know what, 
I'm here. I've learned. I've endured all these experiences. You know, I've pioneered. I, I've, you know, I, I've been tokenized. I've, you know, I've, I've been, I've been the guy. You know, and but for what? I have all this experience. Let me put it to good use. Let me put it to work now. Um, and you know, I, again, I, I think you know, I've, these are all things that I'm good at. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm bad at a lot of things, right? But each person has their gifts, right? My gift, I think, I see myself, and, and we can talk about this later, but. You know, as an organizer, as a leader, as, as a public speaker, I think that's what makes me, again, you see me doing all these crazy things, but the one thing that kind of ties them together, you know, are these attributes. And uh, I said, you know what, I don't, you know, I don't know how to attack this from other perspectives. I only know how to attack this from my perspective. So let me do what I do best. Let me get people together. Uh, let me get people in the room, metaphorically speaking, and let's talk about these issues. Let's put some light on them and, and see what comes. Um, you know, I wasn't looking to solve anything in the moment, right? But I was looking to create a space for people to come together and begin the conversation on how. Well, I think, you know, having that conversation is huge. And like you said, uh, you know, we, I think it, it's funny because I, I think when we were growing up in Cambridge and like, you know, through like the early parts, like the elementary and high school, mm -hmm. it seemed like it, for some of us, it may have seemed like racism for the most part was over, except for maybe a few crazies that you may see on the news or I don't know, maybe that one cat acting up down the block. And I think that when a lot of us graduated range and left Cambridge to go to different, you know, colleges, that was sort of, at least for me, and that was sort of the first time where it really started hit me that, yo, like racism is very, very alive and well. It was still there at Ringe, but it was it was a lot more like it, it was a lot more subtle. Out we you know when I like when I went to college New Hampshire, like I'll never forget the twins, Sean and John, and me meeting up with them after their freshman year. And they and I remember one of them was like, Rich, I didn't even know I was white until I went to Westfield. And, you know, yeah. it's different because, it, you know, you saw not just from a racial perspective, but from a cultural perspective, like I didn't realize how much slang or you want to say street talk I actually used until mm -hmm. I went to college because, you know, like I always tell people Cambridge is different. Like, you know, you go to like out in the suburbs, it's still the old school where it's like the people who got clout on campus, it's the varsity jackets, the football players, the cheerleaders, the basketball players. Cambridge was a lot like 21 Jump Street in the sense where yes. popular, I always tell people, I'm like the popular kids were like the kids that were in student government, in the rappers, or like or like the bat or like the basketball team you know, too. But like you, know you I always say not, not yeah. to I always say that at Ringe or in Cambridge all that we cared about was that you were good or dope at what you did. Right, now, right. That could right. be theater. That right, could be right. playing so, the saxophone. That yeah, could yeah. be like, that could be art or it could be sports. But like, we celebrated greatness mm -hmm. and it didn't really matter what, you know, medium that greatness presented itself in. As we're, you're right. Cause I see it as a coach, we go two, two towns over and it is, it's that more traditional, yeah. you know, you know, a soap opera version of high school where, you know, the varsity jackets and yeah. you know, the cool guys walking around and it's, and they have, you know, Ringe is, I would say, again, keeping with your analogy, like 21 Jump Street, yeah. Ringe is a lot like Glee, you know what I mean? Or, or a version yeah, of, of yeah. I not that I even watch Glee, but, I, but like, it's like, again, it's like this one big kind of like celebration of, uh, you know, diversity and, and interests and stuff. And, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm right there with you, right there with you. And it's, it's, and I think that, you know, going off what you're saying, you know, when a lot of us went to college and I, and I think that is when that, I, like, it, it just made it me understand so much more why we need to have those conversations, like you were saying, because, you know, you might not find, you might not be in that room with your coworkers, have someone say the N-word, but a lot of times us as you know, as black men and women, minorities in general, especially the higher we go up in the corporate world, we start to see less and less of us in those rooms. And nobody's talking about, and no one in those rooms other than us is talking about why that is. And we don't talk about how uncomfortable that can be because, you know, if you're telling me that I'm the only, 
I'm the only one in this room because I'm the only black person that's capable of doing this job. That's a lie. There's a lot of, there's a lot of brothers and sisters that are just as, if not way more capable than myself. So why am I one of, why am I the only one in this room right now? And then in situations where you do get those comments, who do you, where is your space to have that dialogue, to have that conversation to say, Hey, that's not an appropriate comment. Here's why. Because a lot of times you run the risk of losing uh, the, your credibility, losing that chance to move up, maybe potentially even losing that job, depending on, you know, how you address it. And so, you know, you rallying the city of Cambridge, I think was so important because it gets people to start speaking and looking at their own and, you know, challenging a lot of people who don't look like us to, you know, challenge their own biases that they may have you know, you don't necessarily have to be walking, running around with, you know, Donald Trump signs and Confederate flags, but there are other ways that you could be contributing, whether it's maybe not hiring a person of color who's qualified because you have certain biases or, you know, not, in, I don't know, not inviting that person to that event because you're worried about having too many brothers in one room or, mm -hmm. you know, like it, whether it's from a hiring perspective or a medical perspective, you know, or just, thinking that, you know, all brothers and sisters are supposed to talk a certain way or be into certain things because not every black person's good at basketball. Not every black person's got rhythm on the dance floor. Not every black person, you know, you know, uh, you know, can run high, jump, you know, run high, jump high, do all that stuff. Some of us- I'm looking behind you. I'm looking at the anime posters yeah, right now, right? Like, <laughs> like- Some of us are in the anime or like gaming yeah. or, you know, something like that. Or some of us might, like myself, might have hint, have some different spots. You might, you might, you might be that brother that's in the gaming, that's in the sports, that's in the anime or, or you know, and you still, you still identify heavy with hip hop culture as it pertains to how you dress. You might have the sneakers and stuff like that, but you don't just fit into that one category. You could be, you know, you might be, you know, you could be in, in the game of Thrones. So it's just like having those conversations is important for so many reasons, because when the George Floyd thing happened, I saw a lot of brothers and sisters on Twitter, just for the first time, finally able to be honest with themselves and speak about, yes. yo, this is what I went through in school. This person challenged my blackness or this, or I got jumped and they wouldn't share that water with me because I was the darkest skinned person in the room. And I think it's really important. What you did was important because it helped black people feel comfortable having the conversation. And it also challenged people who don't look like us to look in with themselves and the challenge there's some of their own racial biases as well. And to not just have that conversation today, but every single day to continue it and do the yeah. work. Mm -hmm. and, and to your point about honesty, I think the thing is, right, when you go into these white spaces at work or in college or wherever, they say, well, oh, that, he's not black, he's, that's rich, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, no, 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 but oh, that's, that's just Nico, right? So, and yeah. it's not like these people are, right, you know, inherently racist. I don't think they have, they hold any, any hate in, the heart, in their heart that they know about, right? But it's this, it's this inherent bias, this inherent racism that presents itself. And, you know, they look at us and they, and they, and they, they pacify, they justify it. Oh, well, Rich is here because he's smart, you know? Oh, Nico's here because he's good at sports. Whatever the, the, the justification might be, but what they don't realize is that nothing separates us from all the other more stereotypical, you know, versions of black people that exist in their head, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, when they see me, they see you, they don't, they don't see a kid from the projects. They don't see a kid who, who, who grew up with this or that, you know? They just see how we present ourselves in this one moment, in this one room. Um, and again, that's, that's, that can be very dangerous. As, as James Baldwin said, the most dangerous place for a black man to exist is in the white man's uh, imagination. And I may be butchering the court a little bit, you know, respect yeah. to my guy, James Baldwin, but you know, it, it goes both ways. And I think kind of, again, debunking that imagination was a, was a necessary step kind of in this work um, and, real, and telling people and, and being honest and saying, and being like, oh, no, 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 our story is their story, right? You know, you see, you see Floyd over here and Nico over here. Turn, no, you know what? They're, they actually probably have more in, in common than you might think, right? Um, and I don't want to, that's a silly way of explaining it. But um, again, I just feel like it was necessary to kind of uh, to work through that. Um, and again, like you said, very, very therapeutic as well um, for, you know, people of color to finally, you know, have, have the space. But you know, not just the mic, but also the ear as well. They had the community's ear and people were really listening to them. You know, how that's been manipulated and used since then is a whole other podcast, right? I think, 
I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, false allyship. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I think what we're seeing right now, and again, I, I will cap it here because this is a whole other conversation. I think there was a lot of empathy and, and honesty that went into those conversations. I now think that um, people have used that um, and now applied it to their own issues. Um, you know, when I say people, I, you know, I, I mean, I mean the privileged, I mean the wealthy, I mean, everyone has their own political agenda. And I think it's, it's telling, I think, you know, people saw what the work that we did, the work that as black people, the organizing that they did, and they say, oh, you know what, that can work for our issue too. Right. And now everything's, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to pull my punches right now without getting too yeah. specific, but, but it, it, it can, you know, we're in a different era now where I think, you know, the work is great, but you know, it's been two years now. I think we need to kind of remind people that we haven't gone anywhere and that our issue is still, is still at the top of the, the agenda. Well, I mean, th I guess this will be my last question on it. And then, cause I, I do want this to be my last question, but, and you kind of you basically touched on it, but what, what are you, because Cambridge is changing. Cambridge doesn't look like what it looked like when me and you were in high school. No. And I, I'm, you know, for you who's wor who has who has worked for the city, you know, what what did you see during those protests, and what are you seeing now? Because you were also on the news. You were on Seven News. I, it was it was Boston Seven News. Yeah, and uh, I think it was, I think it was Fox too, right? Yeah. I forget which one it was. There was a lot. I loved it. There was so much energy and passion on there. And yeah. it was, I forget if it was MLK there, if it was during Black History Month. But, you know, talk to me about, you know, real, like, you know, real quick, just in the, the, to cap it off. What are you seeing now in Cambridge? You know, for I, I guess, like, what are you seeing now between what you saw during those protests and what are you, to, to where we are right now in the city? Yeah, I think, you know, and I, I hate to sound so pessimistic. I, I still think, you know, we did a lot of great work and, and, you know, that work has led to a lot of, you know, great policy changes, you know, nationally, you know, regionally and, and here in the city. But, and here's the big but, you know, I, I think, you know, it was, it was catchy, you know what I mean? It, it, uh, you know, being quote unquote woke, right? Being, you know, uh, a social justice, you know, warrior, being being someone out there with the sign and, you know, bringing your kid to the events and, you know, tweeting and posting a black school. I mean, that was, that was the popular thing to do. That was the trendy thing to do. Um, and this is why, you know, I, I spoke to the kind of, uh, that, you know, the unfortunate, you know, kind of false allyship. But, you know, I think, when push actually comes to shove, right? Like we talk about black lives, right? But mm -hmm. then the same people holding those signs are the ones rejecting affordable housing in their neighborhoods, mm -hmm. right? You know, we talk about, you know, um, you know, police reform, that all this and that. And then again, it contradicts their actions. Um, and I think, you know, we began this work to shift the status quo. Um, and I think people like that as an academic thought process, right? As this idea of imagining the world that could be. Um, but there's a lot for the, you know, for the for the privilege and for the elite and and you know, and just for, to give up to really attain that. And I think when it started to shift from academic to practical, people yeah. started to pump the brakes. <laughs> and they <laughs> said, wait, 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 I'm all for this, but you're telling me I have to give up that. <laughs> Yeah. Or, you know, you're telling me, you know, my kid's going to be in a school, um, you know, with, with, with like more kids of, of color, you know what it is? Mm -hmm. You name it, right? It's just, it's one of these things. Oh, wait, 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 hold on, wait. You mean now my issue has to sit in the back burner, <laughs> right? And their issue might be important. Their issue might be justified, right? But we're talking about, we're talking about people's livelihood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I can spare you the political rant about the numbers and stuff. And, you know, but the, the, you know, the median income in Cambridge for, for black families is like $13,000. Mm -hmm. You know, the median income for white families is close to over a hundred thousand. Right. And it's just like, that, that's a wealth, like, that's a, that's a public health crisis. That's a state. We need to declare a state of emergency. And most people aren't really ready to have that conversation because to do that, it means to give up, it means to give up their fight and their issues and their livelihood. Um, so, you know, as we continue down this road, I think, 
it was great to get everyone on the same page. It was great to get everyone talking, everyone listening. Um, but now we need to find a way to turn that to action. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll cap it there, but it's, there's, the work continues, as yeah, I always say. <laughs> absolutely. I remember uh, it was Isaac Yablo, and I was talking to him like a year ago, and he was telling me how when you think about Cambridge, there's really only maybe like you can count the number of, of uh, you know, of like black people in, in, in our city who you can think about who their family owns their property. And I remember the one person's name who came, who we came to mind. Cause I couldn't think of anyone else at the time. I wasn't sure. I he, can't think of a single person right now, to be honest, besides, yeah, he, besides maybe Isaac, which is like, yeah, shout out to him. Yeah. Like, like Isaac was like maybe Lance Mayo, but that, but that's about it, you know? Yeah. And uh, actually that's mad funny. I not, to, not to shout out my guy on, uh, on the radio, yeah. but, uh, that's one of my oldest friends and also one of my, my colleagues. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've, that was like my, we've, I've known him since kindergarten and mm -hmm. I'm going to his wedding this summer. Uh, high school friend, obviously, we, we played against each other in college. Yeah. Um, now we both coach together at the high school. You know, you think I'm, I'm good at soccer, man. Lance is the GOAT, so. Yeah. <laughs> Lance might be one of the greatest players ever come through this city. Um, truly, truly something special. But with that being said, right, like, I know, I'm not sure what his situation is with his family now, but I know he grew up renting, right? So even still, right, it wasn't, yeah, no, no, no one here has a silver spoon. Um, and another thing, I, it's funny you mentioned that Isaac's little thought experiment. One of the thought experiments that I do, right, is, right, you know, I always ask, can you name, can you give the 10 people from CRLS, 10, 10 Black um, students who, who realistically black men because we know we know our, our black women are killing it in the classroom but can you name black you know 10 black men who who graduated range and also graduated college and it's one of those things where it seems easy it seems easy you're like oh yeah i got this i got this yeah uh, me richard and then all of a sudden you get three four in and you start you start forgetting names mm -hmm. and also even if you can name five six seven because we are out there we are out there I always come back to the point, well, okay, who did you name though? Those are the most exceptional people at their high school. And I'm not saying that we're exceptional because we were better than anyone. I'm just saying we had to grind the most. We weren't just scholars, yeah. we were athletes. We mm -hmm. weren't just athletes and scholars. We, you know, we had all these extra things that like, just to keep on a level playing field with, with average motherfuckers, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and, and so that's what I mean. It's like, first of all, it's hard to give me those 10 names and then even if you rise to that challenge and give me 10 names, you know, you're talking about people who now have advanced degrees, people who have, you know, who have grinded at the division one, the division three level, who have, you know, won accolades or who have been published by, you know, mm -hmm. you know, different publications. And it's like, so that's what it takes to make it out of Cambridge, right? right. You know what I mean? Isaac's got his doctorate, right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, it's just like, you know, you're doing your thing in journalism. I'm doing like, you know, so that's my guy, you know, Elijah Booker, you know, who finished, um, you know, top of his class at Northeastern, but, and credit to, to our hard work and perseverance, but you're telling me that, that that's what it takes just to be on par with everybody else, with the other 1500 people at our high school. And then that's when you really start to see the inequality and the, and the disparity. Yeah. And, you know, you know, like, like me and you were saying before, there's no, there's no difference between a Nico, a Richard, a George Floyd, and an Isaac Yablo. And that, and that is the scariest thing when you're in those rooms and it's just you or me that looks like each other in that room is it, it takes a, it, it, you know, people in that room that don't look like us, it becomes this mindset where it's like, they're the exception. And that's just not true. You know, like, like it, it's, like it, it's it's such a it, it, it's a conversation that work needs to be done. Like you said, work needs to be done because there there were so the fact that the people that you were talking about just now got to where they are. You know, I look at it like a team that wins a championship in sports. It's not just, you talent. You you need that, but there's so many other things that leads into winning a championship. You need you know, like in, like in life, you know, you need people in your life who are able to help you out to give you a couple breaks. You know, there's, you know, there's some folks like, like, you know, there are, growing up in Cambridge ain't easy, man. 
And, you know, I always like I always tell folks like seriously, like there's no difference between me and anyone else that didn't that that didn't go to college because all it took was, you know, it could have just been me walking down the street on that one day and that one night and X could have happened and that would have been it. There wasn't. And so, you know, people outside of this room got to understand that, like, it's not like us as black people. We're not lazy. We're not we're not fundamentally weak in any in any frame of the imagination and it's up to us as a society to help elevate black folks give us the support we need to get up because there's so many systemic issues in this country and it's so scary how often that is overlooked and like you were saying you know everybody wants to put post the black square and tweet and show up to a protest but when it's actually time to do the work See, there was this other quote, and I forget who said it, but it was something, something, equality feels like oppression to those who are the elite. And, you know, it's, I guess my last question to you was going to be, how do we, how do we go from just it being on an academic level to, to, to more on a practical level? That will be my last question to you on the subject, and then we'll transition to the more positive. I do think it helps to sort of have that sort of a note you know, for those, you know, for those listening, like how, how do, how do, how do we, you know, black, you know, just anybody list, like how do, how do we get from academic to practical? Great question. And to be honest, I think if, if I had the answer, <laughs> you yeah. know, I, <laughs> I'd, be out there, I'd be out there doing it. Right. I think yeah. and I also just want to, you know, go back a second and just, you know, back some of what I set up with some data, right. The Cambridge community foundation, uh, which is a nonprofit here in the city, they recently released a 10-year report where they kind of crunched all the demographic data in Cambridge and and came back with some some eye-opening results. And that's where I I pulled those median income numbers from. But again, to our point about making out of Cambridge, only one in three black and brown students from CRLS, so one-third, achieves a college degree within five years of graduating CRLS. One in three, right? That's a school smack dab in the middle of Harvard and MIT. And you're telling me only one third ends up leaving with a, with a college degree within five years of attending CRLS. That's appalling numbers. Mm-hmm. Those are appalling numbers, right? So it's just one of those things where, you know, you know, we have the data, but we don't necessarily always have the motivation to go out there and fix it. Um, and, you know, I, I sound pessimistic when I say this, but the truth is, you know, like, People don't, people don't care about our issues because it doesn't affect them. You know, they don't care about our neighborhoods because there's nothing here that brings them, you know, to this side of town. That's when, again, we had the MLK event, you know, we had it, you know, in the port, which is like, you know, the, the, the black neighborhood in Cambridge, one of the black neighborhoods in Cambridge. And, you know, there's all these people passing through and, and bless their hearts for attending and, you know, and growing and pushing themselves to learn. But I'm, I'm having conversations with people who've, lived in this city their whole life and who have never been in this part of town, right? We don't live in Boston. It's not New York City. It's not LA, mm-hmm. right? This is a small, small city, yeah. right? And we have people who've never even been to our part of town. So how could they ever sympathize with our issues? Um, so I think, you know, one of the big things, how we transition this from, you know, from academic to practical, right, is, you know, again, visibility, right? I think the last two years have been great for that, right? We've been more visible. We've been getting our issues, our truth out there. Um, you know, and I think, but now I think that the real test is, you know, finding out who's really with us, you know, before we can move forward, we need to find out who's actually on our team, right? You know, who, who's really standing behind us, right? Cause it's easy, it's easy to, to celebrate when, you know, everyone's winning, right? right? But when you're losing, right, all those fans suddenly disappear, right? So we got to kind of do some accounting, um, in this activism space and in this work and, you know, and really put some pressure on these on these electeds and on these policymakers, on these stakeholders. You know, and and really say, you know, this is what's going on. Um, and we need we need you to you know to publicly admit it. We need you to we need to put some pressure on you to actually do your job and and work to 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 fix it. Um, because the truth is, while I'm always going to be passionate and work to 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 help the city and fix it, it's not my job, right? <laughs> I'm not taking home a hundred racks 
a year, <laughs> right? <laughs> to yeah. fix these issues. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, if you want to pay me, and I'll be, I'll be working, you know, I'll give you 12 hours a day. And, yeah. I, and I'm still going to give you all the time in my day besides that out of love and, and, and just, and, you know, deep respect and passion for this work. But at the end of the day, you know, we got to put some pressure on the people who's actually, you know, who, who do have access to the money, who do have access to the policy um, and whose job it is to, to lead this city and to fix it. Um, and right now, I think there's, a, there's a, a failure of leadership across the board. And that's not a shot at any one person or any one body. That's just saying we're not doing our jobs. If, if, if Black families are taking home this much money and, you know, and Black students aren't even graduating college, right, that's a failure of the community. And if you're not with us, that's fine. But now we know where you stand. Um, and you can't kind of hover in this little between yeah. world where, you know, you post the Black Square, but then you don't prioritize our issues, right? on the you know on the policy level so i think i think that's the big thing you got to find a, out who's with us on a positive note nico i will say this the work that you're doing is you know creating is creating folks who are going to grow up with the right influence and make the right changes within their own communities because granted i don't remember too i mean times were different when we were kids but i think you know, there's kids growing up in Cambridge right now. Not, I think, I know there's kids growing up, like whether they're in elementary school or high school or just in college and they saw what you did and now they're taking that same energy and they're trickling that down in their own communities, having their conversations, challenge, challenging their political leaders to do more, to have the conversation, to not just be an academic, but to be practical. So, you know, uh, you know, that works for you as a coach and as an advocate, you as an activist, you are creating the change. And, and, and you know, it's always a corny cliche, but the truth mm -hmm. is it's the reality, just how there were athletes and folks who you looked up to to help you get to where you are right now. And same for me, there's someone in Cambridge or even outside who, who saw you on the news doing X, Y, and Z, who you're the spark that is going to inspire them to do something that communities that we may not be, we may not see, we may not know about, but you know, that's what being a leader of men does. And you know, that's, that's the opti that's the optimistic spin that I'll put on is the work that you're doing is, is manifesting in its own way, even if we can't see it right now. And I'll just hop in to, to end on, uh, on this note. I think you're so right. And representation really does matter. You know, it's such a small piece of the pie, but it's it's the it's a real important ingredient, right? And you know, I, I tell a story, right? It sounds silly to people who see representation everywhere. They see themselves in movies. They see themselves, right? All you know, what I mean, like all we have is Denzel, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. I never seen a I never seen a man a black man in military uniform as a kid until I saw a Denzel movie. I never saw a black man as a right as a lawyer. I'm speaking generally, but until yeah. I see Denzel playing with a movie, right? doctors what you name it right it's important to see that stuff and it exists not just in, in pop culture but it also exists in real life too right mm -hmm. it's important for kids right to see a black president because yes oh anyone can be president sure but now you see it now it's tangible now you see someone who moves like you and talks like you and you know and 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 doesn't shy away from his blackness right and like that that's important um you know, you could give a thousand examples to the pioneers in the journalism world, like a, like a Stuart Scott or, you know, even a Stephen A. Smith, like mm -hmm. Stephen A. Smith, whatever you want to say about his, his takes, he is unapologetically black yes. every single day, right? Mm -hmm. Authentically himself. And like that gives everyone power, maybe they're not on television, but it gives you power to go in the office and be yourself mm -hmm. or in the classroom and be yourself. And I always say when I was coming up, um, I was probably, I don't know, maybe a freshman or a sophomore in high school. And I'm playing soccer at the park with my friends. And there's this guy, I'll never forget him. I only met him once. Mm -hmm. Couldn't tell you what he does or who he is. or he, But I remember his name. His name was Max Boateng. And he was a black, he was a black soccer player from Hamilton University. I had never even heard of Hamilton. Small liberal arts school. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're in the, the Liberty League. But either way, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, I was like, I could be him one day. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And in my head, it, I'd always kind of had this idea of, you know, when you're a kid being professional or maybe in high school playing in college, right? But until you actually see it and it's actually mm -hmm. tangible, you say, oh, wow, like that guy, like, you know, like, and again, it's not to disparage him. He was very, very talented, but it wasn't like, 
it was a level that I, I could actually attain to. I was like, you know, I, I could be him. I could, I could rise to that level. It's one thing to have, you know, idolize someone on television, but I'll never be Ronaldinho. I'll never be Tia Henry, but I could be Max Boateng. So to see that and to hear his experience, right, especially in a sport that, you know, internationally is black, but regionally is very, very white and affluent, uh, means everything. And the fact that I still remember his name to this day over 12, 13 years later is proof of why representation matters and why it's important to have um, people who look like you and sound like you, you know, uh, in your space makes you part of the conversation. Now we got to talk about us now while well, use that transition to talk about a space.